I don't remember a whole lot about Sunday mornings attending University United Methodist Church back in Chapel Hill. But I do remember that Reverend H. Langell Watson would grab the sides of the pulpit, lean forward, and say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, it is a joy to greet each and every one of you and to see you present in divine worship. Now, I don't know that much about the posturing of that statement, but it's a sentiment I can embrace. With every passing week, I continue to be thrilled to see all y'all here. Thank you so much for joining us. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we begin, you may notice that our primary text is not in line with the trend we have followed for the past several weeks. And I'm grateful to Jason for allowing me to deviate from the lectionary series that has moved us through the Gospel of Luke. My turn this week would have put us back in another passage about the second coming of Christ. And honestly, expounding on the end times is not something I'm drawn to. Now don't worry, I am definitely looking forward to Jesus' return. But I am happy to let others dissect and interpret the texts. Me, I'm just going to rejoice when he gets here. As an alternative, I've chosen to return to a very familiar and highly guaranteed territory. Paul's letter to the church of Philippi. I have always been drawn to this particular section of scripture. Honestly, it fascinates me. Maybe it's its brevity, only 104 verses and four chapters. Maybe it's the simple clarity of thought. More likely, it's the intriguing and challenging dichotomy of Paul's message and his circumstances. Throughout the letter, he exhorted the Philippians to rejoice in their circumstances while he himself declares his joy chained in the Roman prison. Then it could be the incredible mix of profound theology, I think particularly in chapter 2, seamlessly interwoven with incredibly practical suggestions for living in light of that theology. Does that make you want to hear more? I'm hoping so. Now, the first time I taught this little gem of a book, it was the summer of 1980. I was directing a Campus Crusade summer project in Lake Okoboji, Iowa. And yes, there really is a Lake Okoboji, Iowa. Beautiful little corner of the world as well. <clears throat> it was a great time with a really easy audience a group of spiritually minded, highly motivated, thoughtful kids. And although our time together was really good, I'd only been a believer about a decade. And I'd like to think that my understanding of the book's passage has deepened in the past 43 years. So now I am subjecting all y'all to my fascination, to words 
while they have been very comforting, have at the same time been deeply challenging. Now for those of you who are around in February of 2021, anyone, Bueller, anyone? <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> in 2021, I'm gonna concentrate on the same passage I did on this Sunday when three members of the congregation Zoomed short homilies. I think one of them was you, Vicki, if I'm not mistaken. As we were, as a part of our virtual worship service. I like to think there was some pretty good stuff in that first presentation. But I also think my experience in relating to the text has deepened in the intervening months. Besides, nine minutes was not nearly enough time to do justice to Paul's words. Now, as we look at this passage, the one that Christine read for us, there's so much we could consider. Ultimately, we will focus, as we did previously, on the last three verses. And in order to expand our understanding, I'll do my best to provide some insight by looking at the context in which those verses were found. So let's jump in, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. After his second call to the church to rejoice, Paul follows by warning the Philippians that there are those who have tried to turn their life of faith in, uh, into an attempt to please God, relying on their human credentials. To show the foolishness of this reasoning, Paul pulls out his own resume, a resume that likely outshone all those Judaizers who were trying to sway the Philippians to a works-based relationship with God. Paul's argument? If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> Paul's birth and ancestry were impeccably pure according to Jewish standards. He'd been circumcised on the eighth day, demonstrating his parents' faithfulness to God's command given first to Abraham. Paul was truly, naturally, of the people of Israel. <clears throat> he was born Jewish rather than being converted to Judaism, and there were no outsiders in his family tree. In other words, he was not the Jewish equivalent of a muggle. <laughs> and it's not just his heritage. According to Jewish standards, Paul's training and lifestyle were beyond reproach. He was raised according to Jewish customs and had become a Pharisee. Now, although I realized Jesus had nothing good to say about Pharisees, they were held in high regard by a significant segment of the population for strictly following Jewish laws and customs. I also realized none of this may resonate with you, but for the Jews in the first century of Palestine, it was highly praiseworthy. I don't think it's much out of reach to imagine that Paul, then known as Saul, when he walked down the streets of his hometown of Tarsus, that Jewish parents would grab their little children by the shoulder and point at him and say, I want you to grow up to be just like him. But what does Paul say about his very oppressive credentials? 
He counts them not as gain, but as loss. These are standard accounting words that Paul is using. Picture a ledger. On one side you have credits or gains. On the other side you have debits or losses. Now, Tricia, correct me if I'm wrong, but the point is to have more on the credit side than the debit side, right? Okay. Yet here is Paul moving all of his credits to the debit side of the ledger. And why in the world would he do this? Because they looked like debits when he compared them to the one credit that he added to the balance sheet. The surpassing value, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Understand this, Paul is not speaking hypothetically when he talks about the things he counts as loss. He had experienced the loss of all things, not just his credentials. As we've already noticed, he's in jail. He's lost his freedom. As one of the leaders of the church, he lost his security being in constant danger from the religious and civil authorities. Now, if you want a greater detailing of Paul's losses, check out the description he provides in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's more than a little scary. But also, please do not overlook that Paul identifies the source or the reason for these losses as for the sake of Christ. Now, attention, he goes a step further in describing his perspective on his losses. In the New International Version of the text, the one in the bulletin, uh, there is a word that is translated garbage. The actual Greek word is a little more colorful. <laughs> in less sanitized translations, the word is rendered more, more accurately as dumb. Now, not to get too graphic, but think with me for a moment. Those of you like me who share your home with dogs, what do you do with the stuff you pick up when your pups eliminate the last vestiges of their most recent meal? Do you take it home and display it prominently with other particularly noteworthy specimens? Does it go in a trophy case specifically reserved for items of which you have to take particular pride? I doubt you do. I certainly don't. In my house, those deposits are all taken and go into a collection bag outside my garage door, and every week, waste management comes and carries them away. I don't mourn their passing. I don't even think about them ever again. In fact, I'm just happy to be rid of them. And that is how Paul looks at all the things he counts as loss. Now, let me take a moment to make something clear. Paul here is not speaking about the intrinsic value of the items that he's lost. There are many good things in this life Things that we can accept as gifts from God. James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. For all these good things, we can and should be thankful. 
But so Paul says, compared to knowing Christ, losing them ultimately is not even worth a second thought. From there, Paul returns to the theme of our right standing before God. He describes it as a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says that right standing with God is not a reward for our behavior. Quite the opposite. It is a gift we receive in spite of our behavior. It's not based on anything we do, but solely on what Jesus has done for us. Now next, Paul makes what is likely a very confusing statement, telling the Philippian believers, I want to know Christ. I can envision his readers saying, uh, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you already knew Christ. Uh, didn't you meet him on the road to Damascus? But Paul here is not talking about knowing like you, knowing how to conju- like you know how to conjugate Spanish verbs or how to make proper use of some complex mathematical formula. Rather, he is describing a knowledge that implies a relationship between the knower and the object known. It is personal, it is progressive, and it is experiential. Think of it this way. Those of you here who are married, I'd be willing to bet that you thought you knew your spouse the day you walked down the aisle together. And I'd also be willing to bet that no matter how many years you've been married, you'd say you know your spouse a whole lot better than the day when you said, I do. And I trust you feel your lives are richer because of that deepening knowledge. It's that way with Jesus. Ron Dunn was a Southern Baptist preacher and a favorite speaker at Campus Crusade conferences back in the 1970s. He, as much as anyone, challenged challenged us on the nature and depth of our relationship with Jesus. As you saw in today's reflection, his message was simple. You can know him, and you can know him, and you can know him some more. In other words, in this life, you will never know him so well that there is not the possibility of discovering something new about him. And the more we know him, the more we understand his love for us and the extent to which that love took him to sacrifice his life on our behalf. Knowledge like that can be life-changing. Paul goes on to say more of what's involved in knowing Jesus. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Now, no, he starts with the positive, the power of the resurrection, but he makes it clear there is more involved. Paul is serious about the seemingly negative things that are involved in knowing Jesus. 
Time and again, Jesus had warned his disciples that suffering and tribulation were in their future. Might I also interject, those who insist that the main benefit of faith in Christ is living your best life now are ignoring the repeated warnings Jesus gave his followers about what lay ahead of them. So why is suffering so much part of the Christian life? Jesus' life and message were and continue to be so radically different from that what is espoused by the world he lived in that conflict was inevitable. And although we are not likely to experience here in the United States the same during our lifetime, it's happening in the church around the world as we speak. But there's hidden comfort in this part of the verse. The word that the New International Version translates as participation in his suffering is koinonia. It is most commonly translated as fellowship, and it implies a sharing. The thought is that we are entering into and sharing in the experiences of Christ's suffering which will allow us to know him better. Can we talk for just a minute about what this looks like practically to get to know Jesus? Okay, that's a rhetorical question. I'm gonna continue no matter what you all say. Knowing Jesus is not like any relationship we have or ever will experience. For one thing, we're talking about being personally connected with the infinite, eternal God of the universe, the one who has no beginning and will have no end. Humanly speaking, we cannot see him, we cannot hear him, we cannot hug him. Jesus is not on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Yet through his word, by his spirit, in the company of his followers, we can know him and be known by him as in no other relationship we will ever experience. On the other hand, knowing Jesus is very much like our purely human relationships, which are deepened by shared experiences by being attentive to what the other says and is doing, and asking ourselves, what do those words and actions tell us about what's going on in the other's heart? But know this, and hopefully be encouraged by it, growing a relationship or a growing relationship does not follow a linear progression. Like the stock market, there are fits and starts. There are ups and downs. There are times, rare as they may be, that our schedules are uncluttered and we are happy to fill them with time for someone we want to get to know. More frequently though, our schedules are jammed with many things. Good things, real life things, 
and we struggle to find time to be with anyone. There are times that we can't imagine any other place we'd rather be than with that person. And there are times when we want to be any place but with that person. And I say this cautiously, but anyone who says, tells you otherwise is either lying or delusional. But if your ultimate goal is to know that person, you keep doing those things even when you don't feel like it. It's the same with Jesus. Bottom line, relationships take time and effort, and our relationship with Jesus is no different. Okay, so now we finally come to verse 12. And here is Paul throwing out another potentially distressing statement, telling his readers he has not yet reached his goal. He says it twice, if you notice, in back-to-back -back verses, just in case they missed it in the first one. That makes you think he really wants his readers to not get the point. And I can imagine some of those Philippians saying, if Paul isn't there yet, what chance have I got? And maybe in anticipation of that question, Paul makes his perspective on the situation very clear. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. These two things, forgetting and straining, make up Paul's one thing. For Paul, that first phrase means forgetting not only all his impressive credentials, but also all the losses he had suffered. And what does that mean for us? Basically, there is no benefit in looking back longingly or remorsefully about things that are no longer a part of our lives, things we cannot change like a natural ability that has dwindled with age, or a relationship that ended badly, or rec the recognition we used to receive for accomplishments, both professional and personal. The same things goes for things that were never a part of our lives. <laughs> Athletic and academic accomplishments, or the resources to enjoy whatever we define as the good life. Basically, whether your history is praiseworthy like Paul's or cringeworthy like most of the rest of us, we can put it all behind us. Like Paul, we can come to understand and live out that looking over our shoulders doesn't get us any closer to our goal. One more thought on forgiving, forgetting. If we are looking back, we are also more likely to veer off course because our attention is not on where we're going. We need to keep our eyes on the prize, like a runner focusing his energy and attention on the finish line. That image is taken up by the author of Hebrews, who says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus in the way we've been talking about, knowing him more and more. The author and perfecter of faith, consider him, that is, take time to reflect on his words and his actions, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. This race in which we find ourselves is not a sprint. It's not even a marathon. More accurately, it's an ultra marathon because we're gonna be in it for the rest of our lives. And discouragement is the enemy of our successful completion of our course. Knowing Jesus more and more enables us to continue to press on to the end. At this point you may ask, well, what's at the finish line? In Paul's words, it is to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That is to experience the eternal life in God's kingdom as he always intended and attaining the ultimate and final resurrection from the dead. But note, note something else that Paul tucks into this phrase, a little reminder of who started this whole process. Christ Jesus did the original taking hold. Like everything else in this life of faith we share, the initiative was God's. Our responsibility, as always, is to respond in faith. Finally, when Paul says, I press on, the implication is, I will continue to press on. He is not done, and he won't be done until there is no more reason to press on. And that will not happen until he sees Jesus face to face. And like Paul, until the day we see Jesus face to face, you and I are all in a race, and we are encouraged to press on to the same goal as Paul. But be encouraged by this thought. This is not a race where only one person stands on top of the platform with a gold medal around his or her neck. There is room for all of us on the victor's stand. We can all win the prize for which God has called us heavenward. We can all know Jesus, we can know him, and we can know him some more. And that knowledge can be, will be, life-changing. So, in town church, while we are in this life together, let us encourage each other to press towards the goal of knowing Jesus. As we do, I think we will likely be surprised what God does in and through us. Amen.